Welcome to MNI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm Pedro da Costa, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by former Fed Board Governor Jeremy Stein. He's currently Professor of Economics at Harvard and chaired the university's economics department to 2021. Dr. Stein is also a former senior advisor to the Treasury Secretary and was on the staff of the White House National Economic Council. He's considered one of the leading voices on financial stability and bank regulation, which is why his presence on the podcast today is so especially timely. Thank you so much for joining FedSpeak. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be with you. I mean, let's just take a step back and start with your general assessment of the situation. You know, what a difference a week makes. The the chair testified talking about possibly hiking 50 basis points, and then, you know, the rest is history. But I guess starting with SVB and most recently, the 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 major bank bailout of uh, First Republic. I just wonder what you make of, of the developments of the last week. Well, I mean, they're dramatic. And, you know, it's funny, we were just talking about this. On the one hand, you know, it's hard to, if we had said a year ago that the Fed was going to hike as much as they have, I think many of us would have said, well, something is going to break, uh, which is on the one hand, a cheap and easy thing to say. And yet I don't think many of us would have thought that this was the thing that was going to break. Um, we would have probably been focused on on things outside of the traditional regulated banking sector. We thought, oh, well, there's more capital in the banks. Banks are in good shape. We need to worry about the shadow banks, the bond funds, that sort of thing. Uh, so this has been both dramatic and, as always, kind of humbling, right? Because when you look back at it, you say, well, how did we miss it? Uh, the mark-to-market losses in these banks were there for everybody to see. The ratio uh, in the case of SVB, not only the loss of the mark-to-market losses, but the fact that they were operating with largely uninsured deposits there for all of us to see if we had cared to look. And yet, here we are all blindsided by something that I'm afraid is going to look blindingly obvious uh, to people in retrospect. Is it a massive regulatory failure in that context? Well, or is it a lot a of things? It's a management question. failure as well? I think, well, it's surely a management failure, and there are a a number of possible ways in which either regulation or supervision could have failed. So I think there's clearly some blame for for the regulators, whether, and, you know, there'll be a a process of trying to attribute exactly what went wrong. So, you know, among the things that people have mentioned in 2018, banks of the size of SVB were, were exempted from some of the more stringent uh, stress testing and other requirements. Back in 2013, when I was at the Fed, there was a decision around whether losses, mark-to-market losses on so-called available for sale security, some of the securities there, should that flow through to your regulatory capital? The decision was it doesn't have to flow through. So that's, that's one. And I'm, you know, I think all those may possibly have played a role I'm a little skeptical about the stress testing having played a role because the stress tests, as they were conducted on the bigger banks, did not stress, did not have a big interest rate stress. Which is very surprising in itself, right? Absolutely, right? And I I wonder whether it's the rules on the books or it's the supervision process. I mean, after all, a bank of that size is going to have supervisors on site and you kind of wonder a little bit about, about what went on there. So that that is, I think... I, you know, I, I, I don't excuse, and I think there surely were failures, exactly what the failures were and exactly what the, the most important lessons to be learned, we'll, we'll see. But 
I think it's going to be the case that we need to learn something from this and regulation supervision needs to be adjusted going forward. Before we even get to First Republic, I guess, what do you make of the, the response from regulators and the Fed? What do you make of this new lending facility? Do you think it's going to work? It's all very murky at this point in terms of you know what's being done and, and what the likely take up is going to be. Yeah. So I think to put it in perspective and to sort of understand why they're doing what they're doing, the big bazooka last time, last time in 2008, when there were fears, um, the FDIC just went ahead and blanket insured all the liabilities of the banking sector. Now, Dodd-Frank has made that, made it unable or, you know, impossible for them to do that now without Congress approving it. So in the world in which we live, that's sort of off the table. So we're dealing with a somewhat less powerful toolkit to begin with. So what, you know, what have they done? The FDIC was still, still has the authority to invoke so-called systemic risk exemption to protect the uninsured depositors after the fact. But that's different. And that, you know, you can draw the inference that they're likely to do that if another one goes down. But that's different than blanket insuring upfront. And the Fed has created a lending facility, which is sort of abnormally generous in the sense that they're standing ready to lend against um, these banks' securities holdings at par value rather than at market value. And many of these securities holdings are, are the market value significantly below the book value simply because interest rates have gone up. So in some sense, the Fed is lending. Usually they lend with a bit of a haircut or a bit of collateral extra. Now they're lending in some sense at a negative haircut. Because of that, we've got the Treasury putting up some money from the Exchange Stabilization Fund, basically to backstop the Fed in the event that there were losses on the loans that the Fed makes. So that's obviously helpful. Again, it's not as sort of unambiguously powerful as just blanket guaranteeing everything. This is saying, well, if stuff does run, in other words, if you if you blanket guarantee, presumably there's not a run. End of story, you're finished. Here it's saying, well, if you do lose all your deposits or some significant fraction of your deposits, we the Fed will make up for it. Um, you know, and one thing that's going to be important, and I think we'll get into this, is even if you sort of temper the runs. And then everybody ends up sort of keeping their deposits. It's going to be important to ask at what rate. A big part of the banking model and a big reason that I think people thought it was okay to have mark to market losses and to not really recognize them in some sense is, well, if your deposits are very sticky and if not only are they sticky, but the rate, basically the depositors are sort of sleepy and they're happy to accept a very low rate zero, then you're going to be fine and you can ride it all out. But of course, if you're going to have to keep, if in order to keep your deposits, you're going to have to bring most of them up to market rate, and you're paying 5% while the bonds are earning two, then even if you don't have a run, you're going to start bleeding out to some degree. So I think even if, and I don't want to say we're not going to have run problems, but let, let's assume we can kind of, you know, put a blanket over that, I think there's a question of what the sort of long run solvency implications of this are for some of the banks. And what do you make of what happened at First Republic? It's it's somewhat a different trading strategy gone wrong, but it's a similar similarly yeah. related to the the shock of interest rates, right? Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And do you think that this 
conglomerate of banks coming in and stepping in is sufficient? And is it a sign of strength or is it a sign that they're, they themselves are afraid of this contagion kind of affecting their own well-being? I think it is, it is a sign of confidence. I don't, I don't, at this point, I have little concern for the biggest banks, in part because the regulation there has been, you know, they're, they're very well capitalized. They don't have the same kind of vulnerability. Some of them do, Bank of America, I know, and some of them do have fairly significant, again, mark-to-market losses on their asset portfolio, but they have significantly stabler deposit bases. So again, what gets you into trouble here is really the interaction of these two. So Silicon Valley Bank being the perfect example, they were some something like the 10th percentile of um, losses relative to their capital. So pretty bad, but not the worst, but like the 99th percentile of uninsured deposits to total deposits. So it's it's really the interaction of those two. If you look at the bigger banks, deposit bases are much stabler um, and they have their well capitalized. So I don't think I don't think it, I think it's them stepping up and trying to support the banking system, um, which is helpful. And I think it's a vote of confidence in some combination of First Republic and in the backstop of the Fed. They know that even no matter what happens to First Republic, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be covered. So it is a vote of confidence, whether it's enough. Look, this is a fast moving thing. Uh, you'd like to think it would be enough. And I think it ultimately will. I mean, I, again, I don't think depositors will lose. You know, it will. If the question is, will these banks, the ones that are economically viable, be able to fund one way or another, be it through the Fed or otherwise? Yes. I think ultimately the harder question going forward is they'll be able to fund, but how much deposit repricing will you get? Again, the core, core thing in the banking model. And the reason they sort of get away with this kind of accounting is the premise that deposits don't reprice one for one when market rates go up. This is the so-called deposit beta, uh, you know, is the sensitivity of deposit rates to market rates. And even if the deposits stay, I have to believe the deposit beta is going to be higher. Than, you know, it's, it's all about, although deposit beta is all about the idea that your depositors are kind of sleepy, they're not asleep right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? The alarm uh, clock has even, has yeah. has rung. Even my mom is like asking me questions, right? The same uh, with my my dad, and he's in Brazil, so it's right? a global, so, global concern. So you know, money will you know one way this traditionally works, and we've seen big flows out of banks into money funds. Now that's actually typical. That happens in a rising rate environment with no panic. And what happens is you know some deposits, some retail deposits flow into money funds. Then the money funds relend it back to the banks as wholesale kind of market base. But you get more of that, you'll just get more stuff kind of marking to market on the liability side. Okay. In the limit, if everything on the liability side is at market rate, as it would be, for example, if they're borrowing from the Fed, then you've got a real, even if you've got no liquidity immediate emergency, you've got a profitability problem, right? Because again, you've got the 2% stuff. Uh, paying 5%. And then the mark-to-market number, it's not an immediate disaster, but it's sort of telling you something about the present value of their income bleed. And so again, that's that's scary, not in a this week or next week sense, but it's worrisome in a, you know, we're going to have to recapitalize the banking sector sense. And that will depend very much on how much these deposits reprice. 
that's kind of, I, th I think, beyond the run question. Once we get past the next week or two, that's going to start to be the focus, uh, the focus of the of the concern. That's really interesting. Okay, so where does that leave monetary policy? Right, the you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, we transition from uh, the chair putting 50 basis points on the table last week to, you know, the market completely taking it off the table. Yeah. And uh, now we're kind of settling on a quarter quarter point hike, but with the much reduced potential peak rate, there's a lot of uncertainty as to how much further the Fed will, will tighten into this kind of financial instability. So what are your views on that? I mean, one way to say it, if I was sitting at the Fed, I would want to be very clear on the proposition, we're not going to back off on our commitment to bring inflation down in light of the financial stability issue that we're going to deal with both and we're not backing off on the commitment whatsoever. However, what is that what does that commitment imply for the path of the funds rate? Um, for all the reasons we were just discussing, I think it's not uh, implausible to think we may have a decent bank credit crunch uh, kind of in the works at this point. And it's hard to know exactly what the magnitude or the sort of the, you know, the impact of that is going to be. So I think it's reasonable to say we're absolutely kind of pursuing our inflation target with the same level of commitment as before. But how much that's going to take on the funds rate, given that we're going to get a tightening of financial conditions, that's a little bit up in the air. And if one was to do 25 or even to pause, I think you can still message that as not sacrificing the monetary policy objective, but just recalibrating, given that we may have, we have a potentially large and at this point, a little hard to fathom bank credit tightening coming. Uh, people, people have argued that the financial, the tightening of financial conditions that's happened just in the last week is equivalent to a rate hike. Do you agree with that point of view? Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I, I would be very um, reluctant to try to say it's a one unit or two unit or three unit rate. I, I think it's potentially for the reasons we were talking about, depending on, again, how the deposits reprice and what the ultimate kind of hit to bank. And it's going to be probably a slow moving thing to some extent. Um, the other thing that we're going to have to sort of start thinking about is it will depend on the regulatory response. And there's a big open question here, much like the kind of stuff we sort of argued about in 2008, 2009. How do you respond to this as a regulator? You know, and let me just sort of suggest two kind of polar paths without necessarily picking one. One is the kind of let's sort of smooth this all over. You know, let's give them lots of liquidity support. Let's act like this is mostly a liquidity problem and kind of hope for the best. And, you know, maybe rates kind of stay pretty low and they earn their way out, basically. The other is the more aggressive, and this is what ended up happening in 2009, as you know, with the stress test, you're like, you guys have a capital problem. You need to fix the capital problem. First, no dividends, no repurchases. Second, uh, we're gonna get in there and dimension the size of the hole. And then we're gonna tell you to issue a bunch of equity. That is the sort of more aggressive treatment. The pro of it is, if there is a solvency problem, you get it behind you quicker and you don't have a kind of Japan type of thing. The concern is look at bank stocks. And, you know, if you say this now, you're going to further spook bank stocks. And does that kind of exacerbate the, the problem? Again, we were able to do this, I think, a little bit more easily in 2009 for a couple of reasons. One is, again, the banks had been completely guaranteed. 
So even if you spook the stocks, you couldn't really create a run on the liabilities, right? And the second is at the end of the day, we had the TARP backstop. So if you spook the stocks and they had trouble raising uh, equity in the private market, the government could kind of backstop that. So, you know, I tend to like the, you know, intervene and fix it kind of thing, but it's a hard, it's a hard set of issues at this point. But all, all, I'm, all I mean to say without sort of saying what the right, uh, what I, you know, I don't know what the right answer is, but how regulators lean one way or another, I think is going to affect, you know, the banks are going to be quite nervous about whatever's coming down the pipe regular in a regulatory sense. And that will, I think, until that gets cleared up, is another reason they're going to be likely to pull back, uh, pull back on Monday. So the Fed has the perhaps unfortunate task in the upcoming meeting of delivering an SEP. Mm-hmm. And of course, it, it took the unusual step of not delivering one in the height of uh, COVID uncertainty, but everyone expects that it will deliver one this week. And we had gone, you know, we had priced in a peak rate all the way up to like five and a half people were talking about six and up. And now, of course, that's all been taken out in the market. Do you think that, do you have any thoughts about what the Fed might be showing in this SEP? I don't, I don't, only because there are just sort of a lot of, you know, this is such a moment of uncertainty and the SEP, you know, and it's not a, I mean, you're talking about it as if the Fed was a unitary uh, person, but everybody does the SEP alone and there's not any coercion from the chair. And different people will have different models. I think some people will want to signal that they're resolute on inflation, and that might, you know, lead to a to a relatively higher path of rates. Others will recognize, kind of, or will will have in mind a more powerful credit crunch effect. So it's very hard. It's going to depend. And I've seen, you know, reasonable people now disagreeing of should they do twenty five, should they do nothing, and it, none of it. I think none of the difference speaks so much to a uh, difference in the sort of urgency of dealing with inflation so much as just the different model of how this is going to play out. There'll be some uh, tempering of maybe the near term movement in rates. I would be surprised if they come down as much as the market has come down yeah. uh, in recent days. I think that I think the market is probably gone, gone further than, than, than most FOMC members have at this point. And do you think that's going to become a key kind of line of division or maybe of debate and discussion within the committee, how much you can actually separate financial stability policy from monetary policy? I think, I, I, again, I don't know. I don't know. And I hate to sort of anticipate how others are thinking about it. But I, again, I think the way I framed it is probably at least a baseline thing. It's, it's not so much that people will say, huh, because of financial stability, I'm kind of giving up on inflation. It's more, we have this inflation thing, you know, and we're going to continue to pursue it, but the, the, this financial stuff has tightened financial conditions and that has implications for where we set the funds rate. So I think that's, I think the, the, the sort of thing where again, there's room to really disagree because we just in a fog right now is what this will do, what the kind of tightening impact of this will be. You know, we'll start seeing, but this is not um, normally, I would say, oh, look at credit spreads, look at bond market credit spreads, because normally under normal conditions, there's a quite close correlation between bond market credit spreads and something like the senior loan officer survey of bank lending. So that would give you a quick read. Unfortunately, here we know that there's something special happening in banking. That's So even if credit spreads haven't moved much, 
you suspect that there could be a lot of tightening coming from the banking sector. And that's just harder to get a handle on right away. You know, it's gonna, it's just gonna take us a little while. We'll have to look at, and you know, bank credit, the crudest measures of bank credit often go up at times like this because of loans made under commitment. People start getting nervous and they draw down their, their credit lines. You have to really be careful to look at new loan originations. And that's going to take a little while, I think, to get a sense, um, to get a sense of. And so given these widespread liquidity concerns, there's been some speculation that the Fed might want to back off of QT potentially or, you know, reduce its pace in order to alleviate that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, in some sense, I mean, depends what you mean by, you know, so QT or QE, they have sort of an asset side and a liability side, right? So when the Fed is doing QE, it's both buying bonds and increasing the reserves in the financial system. Even if they don't stop mechanically QT, they have expanded their balance sheet pretty pretty quickly just now because, you know, because of the new lending program, they've lent, I think, essentially to, um, you know, to the FDIC, not to the FDIC, but they've lent against the deposits or to, to, to sort of deal with the deposits of the two failed banks. So their balance sheet has popped up quite a bit. They just released this yesterday. So more reserves are more liquidity in some sense is going into the system independent uh, or it's sort of going in the opposite direction uh, as QT. And is that a back backdoor QE, as some people will call it? I mean, it, uh, I suppose it depends what you mean. In other words, again, it's the asset side and the liability side. They're not, you know, what QE or QT is doing has to do with buying and selling treasury bonds. So in this case, they're not going to be buying them. They'll be lending against them. So it doesn't have the same effect in terms of maybe putting downward pressure on treasury rates as QE does. But that's not our problem, right? I mean, treasury rates are are falling pretty rapidly. So we don't need that. If you thought we needed, for whatever reason, more reserves in the system, it is having that effect. So I, I would be inclined at this point to just leave QTV. In part, I mean, the way I would say it is, again, the problem we have is not that the 10-year treasury is too high. So that, that's not the issue. And they've got already, as you've been kind of alluding to, a pretty challenging communication problem between monetary policy and financial stability. You know, I just don't want to add one more thing into the mix that they have to communicate over. You know what I mean? It's enough to say that the monetary policy is sort of summarized by the funds rate. You're like doing this and you're stopping QT. And then like, it's just becomes too highly dimension, too a high dimensional thing to, to talk coherently about. So I'd be inclined to leave that be. I don't see what problem that is creating. Again, the pro- that we don't have the problem that rates are too high uh, or that there's too much upward pressure on rates. We have ample reserves and reserves are gonna be growing, if anything, because of this new program. So I, I, I would sort of just, be inclined to set that to the side and leave that on whatever autopilot it's on. If I could just throw in more, one more question on monetary policy before I let you go. Do you have a current estimate for how, how high the federal funds rate will ultimately go in this cycle? Um, and, and what's your sense of how, how long they'll actually you know, hold rates at peak given uh, I mean, the market I, pricing know, of cuts? Let me answer it in two parts. Because <laughs> I think I had a coherent answer for you before this week. And so then we can sort of do do a do a delta to that. You know, before this week, I was probably on the higher end, not so much just in this cycle, but you know, there's this longer run debate about once we kind of get inflation in check, are we going to return to 
kind of a low interest rate environment, what's happening with so-called R-star, the neutral rate. I was probably, uh, you know, and Olivier Blanchard, um, former chief economist of the IMF, was on one end of the debate saying, look, you know, the low rates that we had kind of before COVID were basically the product of long-run structural and demographic factors. And those structural and demographic factors are still there. So long run, we're headed back to a low rate world. I'm a little bit more of the view that structural factors are not the entire story and that the, in some sense, the central bank matters, not just in over the cycle, but in the longer run. Um, you know, one way I've thought about it is inflation is a little harder to control than you might think. And sometimes it stubbornly wants to be at 1.5. And then the central bank, well, it's their job. And so they're trying to get it to two. And so they keep rates very low. Uh, they don't necessarily have all that much effect because it stubbornly wants to be at 1.5, but then you have a low rate regime. If things change and now, you know, the anchor has kind of slipped a little bit and inflation kind of after this wants to stubbornly be at three, um, the Fed will have to keep rates high. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way I think about it, that, you know, we're going to get past the worst of this. But my guess is there's just going to be some holdover. And, you know, whether you think of it as ongoing wage pressure or ongoing cost shocks or just a displacement of expectations, so people kind of are anchored around three rather than two. Well, if we have that for a while, um, you know, they're sort of going to have a hard time cutting just because it's going to seem weird to be cutting when you've declared a 2% target and and we're at three. So, so my guess before all of this would be, you know, we're going to get up around mid fives or so. And barring an accident, we're actually likely to be in a world where inflation runs a bit above target for the next five years. And as a result, rates are higher uh, or sort of stay close to where they are. So then the big question is sort of, you know, how does this change everything? And we've talked about the uncertainty, right? It's just hard to know whether we're going to have you know, the the to make it sound big, you'd say, again, there's a pretty big potential solvency problem in the banking sector, and we may not fix it, given kind of the, the natural regulatory response, we may not fix it aggressively. And then it kind of hangs around as a drag on demand for a number of years, and that kind of pushes the, the, the natural rate down. Could be 25, could be 50, could be 75. You know, if you were going to lean against that, you'd say, yeah. But let's remember that in the U.S., 20% of corporate credit is done in the banking system and 80% is done outside the banks. And this is a part of the banking system. So, yeah, there's going to be an effect, but maybe it's not as dramatic as it would be in a more bank-dominated economy. So, again, maybe there's something there, but maybe it's more like 25 basis points and not 100 basis points. Uh, but, again, I have huge, huge standard errors around that, given that we're just so early into this and it's just, you know, I, I, I would hate to kind of put a number out there. That's totally fair. The uncertainty band has widened. It was already big, but it, it seems to have big. widened yeah. very, very dramatically over the last week. So anyway, thank you so much for your time. That was Dr. Jeremy Stein of Harvard University, former governor of the Federal Reserve Board. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on FedSpeak. Good to be with you, Pedro. Thanks for having me.